0: Amen. man, if you have your copy of scripture, we're in Acts chapter 21 this morning. Acts chapter 21. Book of Acts is of course in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. In the book of Acts chapter 21. Looking at verses 15 through 40 this morning as we continue our series through the book of Acts. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. It says, After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nathan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those Who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law but as for the gentiles who have believed we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from that or from what has been sacrificed to idols and from the blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews of Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and his place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they have previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out away with him. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, "'May I say something to you?' And he said, "'Do you know Greek? "'Are you not the Egyptian? "'Then who recently stirred up a revolt "'and led 4,000 men of the assassins "'out into the wilderness?' Paul replied, "'I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, "'a citizen of no obscure city. "'I beg you, permit me to speak to the people.' And when they had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and we will stop there. I've titled this message, The Danger of Compromise. Church, this morning, it is not my desire to somehow cast doubt on us doing the work of the Lord. It is not my desire that we would be so afraid to do the work of the Lord that we would be left sitting on the sidelines while everybody else does the work of the Lord. There are many people that never get in the game because they're afraid of making a mistake. I do believe that Paul, in this passage of Scripture, made... A mistake. I believe Paul was human just like we are human. He was not perfect. I do believe he compromised in a way that he should not have compromised. But I also believe the reason he compromised was because he was so focused on sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Jews. And Luke has recorded it for us so that we can be encouraged by it. From this example, we can be on guard against an air of compromise and we can be encouraged in that if we notice how Paul can make a mistake and still be used of God, then perhaps there's hope for us that we too can make a mistake and we too still can be used by God. Ultimately, I pray that through this message, we see that God sovereignly overrules in our lives to bring about his purpose. We will get to why I believe Paul made a compromise in just a moment. The first thing I want us to see, though, in this passage of Scripture is a powerful testimony that is given by Paul. We see that Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem. We've been reading through the book of Acts. We know that Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. He finally gets there. He has the gift from the Gentile churches, which he had collected, and he is well received by the people that he stays with. It, is, uh, it seems like uh, this was an unofficial welcome by a handful of believers. Paul requested an official meeting with James and the elders from the Jerusalem church the next day. This James was the Lord's half-brother. He is the author of the epistle of James and is the obvious leader of the church in Jerusalem at this time. It seems the apostles are out on a missionary journey or several missionary journeys at this time but luke is present at the meeting and he said and to make it clear he says the brothers received us gladly all of paul's companions and all of the jerusalem elders were present at this official meeting but most likely the whole church was not called together the rumors about Paul had most likely affected the congregation so much that it would have, been, would have been unwise for them to be present at this meeting. Furthermore, Luke does not even mention the presentation of the gift that Paul had brought with him. It is very very likely that Luke did not share Paul's enthusiasm for what he was trying to do in presenting the gift and bring, bringing together both Jewish and Gentile believers. Now let's look at verses 18 through 20. Because it's in these verses that we really see this powerful testimony that Paul gives. We have this picture of of the work of God being reported. And this picture of God being glorified. Paul lays out in detail the events of his third missionary journey or tour. It specifically says that he related the things one by one it says. So one by one, he's going through and he's talking about what the Lord had done, what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry is what those verses tell us. And so Paul took the time to give them the details. And it had been roughly five years since he was last in Jerusalem. But notice that Paul did not take credit For anything that had happened. He doesn't take credit for what had gone on. It does not say that Paul was speaking of the things that he had done. And Paul was speaking of these great accomplishments that he had made. But rather what God had done. The churches that were started and the believers that came to saving faith. Were the results of the grace of God. And by the power of God. And finally notice... That James and the Jerusalem church, what they do? They glorified God for what he had done. And I believe that's important to note because it shows that James and the Jerusalem church did support Paul at least to a certain extent. However, with that said, their response is a little odd, which we're going to get to in a moment. But before we get to that, let me share with you a few quick things that we can learn from this church um, as believers, that we can learn from the, from the Jerusalem church as believers here in this present day. First of all, I think that we can learn from this, that churches should receive testimony in, and, for, and information from Missions and missionaries. When someone serves on a mission trip or a missionary visit, we should hear and be informed in detail of that trip. We should want to hear what the Lord has done. In July, a a group of us will be going uh, to Haiti uh, from the church here. And you know what? You should be excited. You should not only be excited to support that mission trip, but you should be excited to hear the work that the Lord has done there so when we come back there should be some excitement hey we want to know what happened what went on what the lord do what took place what transpired there should be some excitement there just as there was at the jerusalem church excitement over the missionary journey of paul but secondly god alone should be recognized and credited with being the person who does the work God alone should be recognized and credited with being the person who does the work. We need to recognize that it is the Lord that's done this work. He may use us, but God alone is recognized. Thirdly, God alone should be praised for the results of the work. I don't believe there's anything wrong with speaking as to how God used you. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with, with saying, you know what, the Lord used me to do this or to, or to accomplish this. But it should always point back to what God has accomplished, not what you have accomplished. And so we, we can learn that from this very first portion, this powerful Testimony. After this powerful testimony is given, we see the beginnings of a dangerous compromise. A dangerous compromise. The response of the Jerusalem church elders has always struck me as odd. They just got done glorifying God. And then, in the very next statement, the very next statement they make, they glorify God, and the very next statement, they tell Paul that thousands of Jews who have believed are zealous for what? What are they zealous for? What do they say? They're zealous for the law. So they take this opportunity to inform Paul of the prejudice which large numbers of the converted Jews had against him. And so these people have been told that Paul was teaching the Jews, as we read here, he's, he's teaching the Jews who lived amongst the Gentiles to forsake Moses and not to walk according to the Jewish customs. That's what they say. They say, this is what this is what we've heard, that you're out teaching those Jews that they can't walk according to the law of Moses and going against the Jewish customs that we have in place. And we have thousands here that are zealous at keeping the law. And so we, we have this identification here of a problem. The problem is that all of these Jews were disturbed with the Apostle Paul. But there's another problem. Not only is there this problem that all these Jews are disturbed with the Apostle Paul, but there's another problem. Because this is not based on fact. Their problem's not based on fact. These Jews don't believe this based upon on, on fact that they know. These Jews believe this based upon rumor. Did you catch that? The text says, what does it say? They have been told about you that's what it says verse 21 paul they've been told about you so what can we gather well people are running around spreading rumors about paul they're lying and saying that paul was teaching false doctrine and telling people that the law of moses and circumcision is no longer needed to be kept in fact the charges are strong that they bring against paul they're calling paul an apostate when they say that he is teaching Jews to forsake the law of Moses. The word forsake is the same word for apostate. They're saying Paul, uh, Paul has apostatized. And Paul never said these things that they're saying. He says, in fact, he said that a person could be circumcised and a person could keep the law if they wished to do so. However, a person did not have to be circumcised, nor did they have to keep the law in order to be saved. Paul advocated that circumcision was really a matter of indifference. It made no difference in the sight of God as to one status before God, whether someone was circumcised or not. That's what Paul advocated for. The law is not what saves us. But salvation is through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Several weeks ago, we looked at that. We broke that down, that this is what Paul was proclaiming. Salvation is by faith alone or is through faith alone in Christ alone by God's grace alone that's what Paul taught and so we see the problem in that the first Jews were disturbed and at first the Jews were disturbed and secondly they were disturbed based upon a rumor now that the problems have been identified we see the compromise introduced this is the way things typically seem to happen a problems brought up and a solution is offered, right? However, that solution may not always be the best solution. And in this case, it could be a compromise. And it could be an, an erroneous compromise. Obviously, the church wanted to avoid any faction taking place. And so they proposed that Paul join these four men in their vow and sacrifice. That that way, everyone will see that Paul himself keeps the law. And what I can't figure out is why James and the elders of the Jerusalem Church were not concerned with the fact that these believing Jews were so zealous for the law of Moses. The compromise that is suggested was some sort of Jewish vow and rite, and I'm not going to get into all the details surrounding the vow and the rite that they're proposing. But I'll quickly give them to you what what the kind of the views are. First of all, um, it, it could have been it was for Paul's purification after he had traveled to the Gentile areas. For others it was an for the others it was an affirmation of their Nazarite vow of at least 30 days it could be that uh, Paul is simply sharing in the end of these four men's vow for its remaining duration for a week it could be also that these four men have contracted uncleanness during their vow and they need to be restored to purity as well as Paul needs restoration. Or it could be that Paul's cleansing has nothing to do with being a Gentile or in Gentile territory, but it is the completion of his own vow that he made in chapter 18, verse 18, with these other men who were from overseas. The fourth view is probably not the case as there's little evidence to support that view. Um, I personally lean, lean towards that first view that I had said, but uh, I, don't, I don't know that that matters a whole lot, but that's four views of why this was going on. Additionally, Paul was asked to cover the cost of these four men. Doing this was an, all, uh, was an attempt to show that Paul was a true Jew. Paul do this, it shows that you're a true Jew and that he was not teaching that the law of Moses was to be forsaking and that he would display by being obedient to the law himself that you had to keep the law. And by the way, this wouldn't be cheap for Paul because uh, as part of this purification process, according to Numbers 19, was animal sacrifice. And so not only does he have to pay for the whole um, uh, hair cutting, but he also would buy the animals for the sacrifice of these four men. This is not a cheap thing for Paul to do. As we look at this compromise that was suggested, we notice that James points out that they had compromised with Paul before. Did you catch that? James reiterates the Jerusalem decrees from the Jerusalem council that they had given, um, and it's given out here in verse 25. He reiterates what they had already told Paul. It's proof that even after all this time. They're still hung up on the details of the believing Gentiles. And what they should and should not do. Let me pause real quick and say. You know what we can sometimes do this as Christians. We get hung up. With other Christians. And what they should and should not be doing and we hold people to a preference rather than a biblical standard and we think well so-and-so shouldn't be doing that and this person should or should not be doing this and and we don't base that on scripture we base it on just preference that we have somehow we've drawn some sort of preference out And this is what we see James and the Jerusalem church doing. Instead of focusing on Christ, they're focused on the law, but Christ is the end of the law for the righteousness for everyone who believes. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. And so instead of teaching the believing Jews the truths of who Christ is and bringing clarity to their misconceptions that that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, they have concerning Paul's teaching and, and trying to say, listen, Paul's not wrong here. They are instead worried about the believing Jews and saying what are these believing jews going to think surely they're going to hear you're here paul what are they going to think and the need for them now is for paul to compromise and to help bring some sort of peace so the compromise is proposed and guess what paul submits to it here's the thing paul had never taught that customs and rituals could not be practiced if a person wished to do so. He simply taught that they were not necessary for salvation. Remember, he had Timothy circumcised, and he taught that rituals and customs were a matter of personal preference. What we have revealed here in these verses is the fact that these believers can be tragically influenced by rumors and untruths. Therefore, we have to be on guard against those who would kind of stir up trouble and start rumors, and start unscrews, we need to be on guard when we hear people say, you know what I heard? You know what? As a a Christian, you should probably stop the conversation right there. The first first time someone comes to you and says, you know what I heard? Your response should be, well, I don't want to hear it. Because it doesn't matter what you heard. This is exactly what has gone on with Paul. Rumors, untruths, stirring up trouble. Furthermore, when believers become legalists and desire to live by rules and regulations, they will always seek out those who do not meet their standards to cause trouble for them. We understand that when believers say it's all about rules and regulations. Here's the rules and regulations that I believe everybody needs to live by. Here's the standard. And I'm going to find those people that don't meet my standard. And I'm going to cause trouble for them. Even if it means spreading rumors. And here in a little bit, we're going to see why Paul gave in to this compromise. Now, I know, I know the danger in what I'm saying here. I know that, that I'm in the minority and saying that I believe Paul compromised. Not everybody believes that about this passage of scripture. I'm not taking pot shots at the apostle Paul, but I firmly believe that he made a dangerous compromise. I know that not everyone believes that. Many people with minds far greater than mine who believe uh, Paul, they believe Paul was right in what he did. They believe, uh, they believe that they, they are assessing it fairly. I don't and so I believe that he was wrong and I'm going to break down why I believe Paul compromised because I'm not going to stand up and say well I believe Paul compromised and not break down or not defend why I believe that and so I want to give you evidence of why I believe Paul compromised in this passage of scripture and you know what when this is over you don't have to agree with me that's perfectly okay or maybe you will One of the views of one of the reasons why people say that Paul didn't compromise is they just say um, view one is that Paul took a Nazarite vow. They say Paul simply was taking a Nazarite vow. This view says that Paul had taken a Nazarite vow. So for him to shave his head was not a compromise. In Acts chapter 18 verse 18 we see uh, this taking place. We see that it seems though that Paul has taken this Nazarite vow. However, plain and simple, the scripture does not ever say whether Paul was right or wrong to take such a vow. Nowhere in scripture do we read that Paul was right or wrong in taking the vow, and it is debatable whether it was right or wrong in taking the vow. View number two says this. View two is simply Paul simply exercising his Christian liberty. We all have Christian liberty, and Paul is simply exercising his Christian liberty. This argument is that Paul is not compromising biblical truth he's simply exercising christian liberty in what he's doing however what paul is going through is a ritual of purification and so we should ask why is paul willing to go through this ritual well some would say that he's willing to go through it because he was visiting with Gentiles, so he has to go through this purification. And again, the question would be, if Paul was visiting with Gentiles, why does he have to go through any type of purification ritual? Why would any believer go through a ritual of purification that requires an animal sacrifice under the Old Testament priestly system. As followers of Christ, we believe that His blood is what cleanses us from all sin. And that there is no animal sacrifice ever needed to cleanse us from sin again. And we also believe that we have direct access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Meaning that there is never a priest needed anymore to have access to God. So why go back to the Old Testament system it seems to cloud biblical truth so why would paul do this it's one thing to participate in a custom it's quite another thing to do something that could be a hindrance to the gospel of jesus christ by by going back to an old testament system and causing confusion and saying that the atoning work of jesus christ is not enough it's through christ that we are no longer under the law because the works of the law were nailed to the cross View number three is this. Why doesn't the text tell us that Paul made a compromise? This is the argument is based on the fact that the Bible doesn't say in these verses or anywhere else. It doesn't come right out and tell us that Paul made an error. And if he had surely, if he had made an error, surely the scripture would say that Paul made an error. Surely it would record it. Not to mention, Paul tells us later in his writings that he maintained a clear conscience. However, verse 20 clearly tells us that the believing Jews are zealous for what? The law. And Paul clearly taught what? That the law leads us to Christ, but the law does not justify us in any way. Instead, we are justified by one thing, according to the Apostle Paul and what he has written. We are justified by faith alone. He also taught, as we looked at Already that Christ is the fulfillment of the law in Romans chapter 10. He also teaches that in Christ Jesus, there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, but only faith that works through love. Paul makes it abundantly clear that we are no longer under the law throughout his teaching. So how in the world can we say that verse 20 is okay when it says that these believing Jews were zealous for the law? Just because the text does not come out and say that Paul compromised, we can see through the evidence of Paul's teaching, of his own teaching, that he did compromise. Additionally, when Paul speaks of a clear conscience, not saying that he never sinned, he's not saying, hey, I never sinned. He is simply making it clear that he held integrity as a follower of Jesus Christ and that he confessed his sin and acknowledged his mistakes. I don't think he sinned by going to Jerusalem. I don't think that that was sinful. I made that clear last week, but I believe in this instance that he compromised and it was dangerous. View number four, Paul had pure motives. This argument says that Paul had right motives and that he was trying to bring unity to the Jews and the Gentile Christians, therefore being a witness to unbelieving Jews. That sounds good. But guess what? Pure motives don't provide protection from mistakes. There are people all the time that have pure and right motives for what they are doing. But that doesn't always mean that they don't commit an error of compromise. This situation is no different. For Paul, his motives were pure, but that's not an indicator, and what he did was not a compromise. View number five we have no real proof that Paul compromised. This view says that scripture doesn't make it clear again to us that Paul compromised and that just because he was arrested doesn't mean that he compromised because guess what? It was prophesied that he would be arrested beforehand. And I agree that scripture does not make it abundantly clear to us. And I agree that we can't use Paul being thrown in jail as evidence that he was wrong because... People suffer all the time for doing the right thing. I would say this, we have no idea whether the action that led to Paul's imprisonment were right or whether they were wrong because we're not told. However, listen to the argument James Boyce makes. I think he makes the the greatest argument that Paul compromised that we can find. He says this, the greatest proof that Paul was wrong was that God who is sovereign over the details of our lives intervened before Paul was able to offer the sacrifice in the temple and prevented him from doing it. So even though we could say that we have no proof that he compromised, we can also say that we have proof that he did. We have proof that he did. And so I believe he did. And I believe that the scripture teaches that he did in, in a roundabout way. So if Paul did compromise, we have to ask ourselves this question. Why? Why did he compromise? I don't say that I know, definitely know the answer to this question. I think we have some ideas. Some would say, well, if Paul compromised, what would he have done? What else would he have done? What could he have done? Well, for one, he could have spoken more in depth with James and the elders to try to figure out exactly what they meant by being zealous for the law. He could have used this time to show that we are no longer under the law, but under grace, which is found only in Christ Jesus. He could have warned them that they were putting the church uh, against each other and that on one side that you were going to have believing Jews and on the other side you were going to have believing Gentiles. He could have instructed the church that they should not have allowed believers to hold onto the customs and the ceremonies that they were uh, holding on to because they were a distraction from Christ. He could have taught as he did to the Galatians that there's now neither Jew or Gentile. He could have made it um, uh, clear that God is no respecter of persons and that we are all citizens of the kingdom of heaven. There's lots of things that Paul could have done why didn't he why didn't he confront them why didn't he just go along? Why, why did he just say, okay, I'm just going to do whatever you say? Why didn't he stand up for the truth? Listen, I've, I've been in that situation before where there's these accusations that are hurled against you. And you want to do what is right. You want to do something that's not going to damage the testimony of Jesus Christ. And Paul wanted Jews and Gentile Christians to come together. He desired unity in the body of Christ more than anything. He's collected this offering. He's bringing it to Jerusalem so that the Jews would unite with the Gentiles. This was Paul's desire. One faith, one baptism, one Lord. His desire for unity pushed him to cross the line and to compromise rather than confront the truth. I've been there. But let's also remember, Paul deeply wanted to see Jews converted. Paul even said that he is all things to all people. And remember, we have said that Paul has made it clear time and time again that he would be accursed if it meant the salvation of the Jews. Paul's desire to see Jews converted is what led a compromise over a main issue of the gospel, which is the sufficiency of Christ to atone for the sins of man. Church, we can never compromise or confuse the truth. We, we are not allowed to compromise the truth to maintain peace and unity within the body of Christ. We never leave out portions of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we think that they might be offensive to someone else. We're not allowed to do that. Furthermore, there are churches that get torn apart because they compromise the truth for sake of peace and unity. And so rather than address the truth, rather than say this is what God's word teaches, they compromise the truth and they say, well, we're still unified. We're still all together. They think a little compromise here, a little compromise there, it's going to be okay. We're doing it for the right reason. And pretty soon, they're no longer a church. Christians are holding up signs right now saying stuff like this I am a Muslim. Have you seen it? Have you seen Christians holding these signs up? I am a Muslim. Do we not even understand our own faith? That is a compromise of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we believe as evangelical Christians evangelical Christians are encouraged to come together with Roman Catholics to demonstrate our supposed unity in Christ but to do so is a compromise of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that someone comes to salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone by grace alone unity is only important when it's focused around the central truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ we can't continue to tiptoe around things that others might find offensive in the gospel this idea has so crept into the church and into preaching we have a bunch of country clubs meeting, calling themselves churches people become members of these clubs and they're not even saved even these Jews who were zealous for the law at best were immature Christians and at worst they were lost We need to preach the Word of God without apology. We stand on the truth of God's Word and we're not afraid to preach that hell is still hot, that heaven is still real and that sin is still wrong and the Bible is still the Word of God. And we stand on that truth and we say, this is what we believe and we will not compromise. We don't tell Muslims that we worship the same God. We don't tell Hindus that they can just add Jesus to their other gods. I did not go, uh, we don't go to uh, a Hindu priest and, and teach them that it's all okay. I didn't go to a voodoo uh, priest in Haiti and tell them, hey, it's okay, just just receive Christ and you don't need to forsake voodoo. I don't tell a Mormon that they worship the same Jesus that I worship when sharing with a Roman Catholic. I share the difference between righteousness that is works-based and a righteousness that is imputed on us through the blood of jesus christ that comes only through faith alone listen we clearly share the gospel that is what we're called to do and when we stand and sometimes someone perverts the gospel of jesus christ we stand up and we say that's wrong that's not the gospel all this say a prayer and raise your hand theology That goes on in churches all across America. Is suspect. Any decision that comes from that. Is suspect at best. Paul compromised. Listen. He compromised. Because he wanted to see people saved. And Paul was willing to do anything. To see that happen. And unfortunately. It led to a dangerous compromise. Paul's compromise led to failure. When we make mistakes, there are negative consequences. The compromise that Paul made didn't bring about the intended results. Paul failed to stand uh, in the liberty that made him free in the first place. Paul's compromise by going with this scheme backfired. Their public relations strategy that they had laid out um, didn't do so good for public relations. There are two main charges that were brought against him. Did you see him, Paul? Paul had these charges. Paul insulted the Jewish people by turning the world against the Jews, they said. And he has taught everyone everywhere. That's what they say. You always love it when you have all these these, um, these positive things that say everyone everywhere. That's impossible to maintain. But they say Paul has taught everyone everywhere against the people, the law of the temple. This is similar to the charge that was brought against Stephen. Remember that? And Paul was standing there when Stephen was, was stoned. Paul had actually only said that being a Jew or any other nationality for that matter didn't save you. That's all Paul had said. But the other charge, they, that he defiled the temple area by bringing greeks into it the idea is that paul desecrated the temple because he had brought these gentiles into the temple because gentiles weren't allowed in the main temple area and there are stones that were erected that stood four and a half feet tall that inscribed on them were the instructions of foreigners to stay out of the sanctuary they weren't even allowed in gentiles were only permitted in the outer court And so the second charge is that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple area. This is a racial issue. It dealt with temple sanctity. The charges that is brought forth is to show that Paul doesn't care to follow the law and by the law the accuser had mistakenly supposed that paul had brought trophius of ephesus into the temple and so the city gets all stirred up additionally uh, a chance is greatly missed to teach a correct view to the people about who gentiles are that they are also covered with the blood of jesus christ and here the church has an opportunity to show that believing gentiles and believing jews are one in the same faith but the opportunity is missed and greater confusion is brought about and this misunderstanding is allowed to Rule the day. And Paul ends up getting beat up and nearly killed. And he's going to spend almost the rest of his life in confinement because of his compromise. And Paul entering the temple and following after these Jewish rituals rituals does not appear to have any effect on the Jewish unbelievers of the day to bring them closer to the response of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All too often, we allow ritual to replace Christ in the church. And we should never allow this to happen. If ritual and custom help in worship, then we can use them as long as they help us focus our worship on Jesus Christ. But we don't use them if they distract from Christ or replace Christ in any way shape or form our primary goal of gathering together on a Sunday morning is to worship Christ and so we must take heed that we that we when we make an error through compromise that we should just, we shouldn't just blow it off but instead we should we should go before the Lord we shouldn't just act like it's no big deal we shouldn't say well you know what It didn't really hurt anybody, because it does. It hurts ourselves, and it hurts others. Lastly, and I know you're saying it's about time. It's a long message. I understand, but lastly, my favorite part. God sovereignly overrules Paul's predicament. God sovereignly overrules Paul's predicament. Now I know that's a mouthful. I'm not going to ask you to say it five times fast or anything like that. But we see God overruling Paul's predicament. In fact, God spared his life and even gives Paul an opportunity to preach to this mob of people that had just attacked him. God uses these sinful soldiers to protect Paul And what we need to notice is that God is still in control in the midst of chaos. Paul is pulled from the crowd and then he's asked for and obtained permission to address the crowd. Notice how this crowd that just attacked him. Did you notice what happens? This crowd just attacked him. It says that the soldiers had to grab Paul out of the crowd and pull him out because they're beating on him. This same crowd falls into a hush. By what? What's it say? It says Paul raises his hand. (laughs) Who has the power to do that? Right? I mean, if if you all, don't get any funny ideas, but if you all (laughs) were beating on me, right, and you were mad at me, and beating me up, And then I'm brought up here and I just do this. And you all just... I mean, I don't have the power to do that. God does. In fact, there's at least one theologian because of this part right here says this has to be a fabrication. Because there's no way that Paul would be able to do this after being beaten. Listen to what this theologian says. He'll remain nameless. A man who has only just been beaten up by a fanatical mob is physically no longer capable of making such a speech. This reason suffices to prove that this speech and the dialogue preparing for it is unhistorical. But I look at it and I say this is just a testimony to God sovereignly overruling Paul's predicament. Why would Paul do this? Would you do this? Crowd beats the tar out of you. Would you then ask the, the police? Hey, can you give me a few minutes to address the crowd? I want to share the gospel with them. That's what Paul does for the sake of the gospel, church. For the sake of the gospel. So even though Paul compromised, he stands on these steps and he prepares to proclaim to the crowd the gospel after being beaten by this crowd of people Paul is going to wind up in prison as a result he will present the gospel to governors to rulers to people that he would never have had contact with ever before in his life while he's in prison Paul will be shipped to Rome eventually and he's going to witness to Caesar's household he will write in prison the prison epistles Ephesians Philippians Colossians and Philemon you see God overrules. Paul's predicament why I, I read this week some something that just it blew my mind pertaining to these verses I want to share it with you this morning it says this religious formalists are always at war with the spirit of God for where the spirit is there is liberty the chains of the Roman soldiers were more merciful than the tongues of these hypocrites But the man of God is immortal until his work is done. The reason why God sovereignly overrules Paul's predicament is very simply this fact. God was not done with Paul yet. And this is evidence that we can claim that great verse that we often quote. That God works all things together for the good. To those who love him. And who are called according to his purpose. In the eyes of man church. Paul being thrown into prison. Is not good. But in the eyes of the Lord. He uses Paul's time in prison. To bring about the most good. Paul's being thrown into prison is simply a display of the grace of God that God sovereignly overrules because he's not done with Paul yet. And when God is done with Paul, then Paul can go. But he's not done. D.L. Moody once said, if you don't go to work for the Lord because you're afraid of making mistakes, you'll probably make the greatest mistake of your life. That of doing nothing. Church, I didn't preach this message to stand here and condemn the Apostle Paul. I didn't preach this message to act like I'm some sort of great Bible expositor because I know I'm not. The truth is this. While I may hold a minority opinion on Paul making a mistake and while I may hold this opinion that he compromised, there are others that hold the same opinion. And this is not express that we can sit there as a church that we can sit in our pews or sit on the bleachers or sit on the sideline and do nothing when it comes to our faith that we would, that that we are just too afraid that we might make a mistake or that we're too afraid that we might somehow cause a compromise but rather that we should examine our lives to see that we have compromised including the compromise of a failure of serving the Lord. That's why I share this message. It's a compromise to sit there and do nothing. If God has revealed an air of compromise in your life today I pray that we would ask for forgiveness and I pray that we'd get busy doing the work of God and that we would stop sitting on the sidelines doing nothing church listen church if this Jerusalem church had properly discipled their members then they would have defended the apostle Paul they would have never given into the pressure that had been given to them furthermore if they would have properly been uh, discipled they would have uh, had no problem with what Paul was doing And when people came and shared rumors, they would have shut them down. They would have shown grace to Paul. And that's what we're called to do. When others make mistakes, we're called to show grace. I'm not talking about repeated habitual sin. But I'm speaking of when we see someone make a wrong decision or a decision that we don't like You and I are called to show grace. We can't continue to sit and do nothing when it comes to our faith. We can't continue to sit there and think that our sole Christian duty is to show up on church on Sunday morning and believe that we should just walk the middle of the road in our life. We can't continue to not share the gospel out of fear of rejection. We can't continue to never suggest a plan to reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ in which we live or to never cross an ocean for the sake of the gospel out of fear of criticism. We can't continue to never give advice to those who are suffering and hurting and going through difficulties out of fear that we might say something wrong we cannot continue that way church now, at some point we have to step out in faith at some point we have to be active oh god that we would seek his will and that we would stop being afraid of making wrong decisions and that we had stopped sitting on the sidelines doing nothing with our faith oh that we would be moved in our our place, that we would burn with a love for others to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that we would stop dishonoring the gospel and stop dishonoring ourselves, that we would cry out no matter the cost, whether it be convenient or not, we will take every advantage to voice the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, don't despair. Don't think that you have somehow thwarted God's plan. For your life. Because in His grace. God will work around you. And God will work through you. Even in the midst of your mistakes. And for one reason only. For His glory. Trust Him. Trust Him. Step out in obedience to his will and stand in amazement that he takes a filthy wretch like you and me. And brings about his glorious purpose. Trust him. So I ask you this morning. Are you living a life of compromise? Or are you living a life that fully trusts in him? That wherever he leads, you will go. And whatever he calls, you will do. Because even though Paul compromised, he at least did something. Church, are you trusting in him today? Do you trust in what he's called you to do? Are you living a life of compromise and you're just doing nothing and you're satisfied. This morning. If the Lord's spoken to you. And you need to pray. You can come and pray. If you need somebody to pray with you. I'd be glad to do that. If you need to, to give your life to the Lord. Maybe for the first time the gospel made sense to you. And you'd say I've never even surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I'll be standing down front. Love to talk with you and pray with you. You don't you don't have to come forward to pray or anything like that. If you want to talk afterwards. We can do that. If you want to pray in your pew. And and do that sort of thing, you're more than welcome to do that. I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to this message this morning and simply ask you, are you living a life of compromise or are you living a life that's completely sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because even when you mess up, He will sovereignly overrule until you're done. Let's close with prayer.